Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you um, for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you that as our Hebrews passage today reminded us that you meet us uh, in the midst of our suffering and our pain. You empathize with us. You're our great high priest. We come to you now as a great high priest, and we ask you to um, be ministering to us as we come before your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a special thank you to Juliet. You did a great job today. Thank you so much, Tyrone, who is helping uh, welcome people in, other of the youth who are helping out today. I just want to say thank you so much. It's a joy um, to worship with all of you, and it's a gift to have you guys serving in this way, so thank you. And Kimberly, who's going to be singing later on. Uh, friends, as you know, we've been going through um, Eugene Peterson's book, Along Obedience, in the same direction as we've been going through the Psalms and Ascent together. And one of the things that uh, Peterson invites us to, to do or to think about in that book is that he invites us to consider the Psalms of Ascent as a guide to the pilgrimage of faith. And so he says this, uh, this picture of the Hebrews singing these 15 Psalms as they left the routines of discipleship and made their way from towns and villages, farms and cities, as pilgrims going up to Jerusalem has become embedded in the Christian devotional imagination. It is our best background for understanding life as a faith journey. So he's encouraging us to see these 15 Psalms as this lifelong journey of faith, this guide to this lifelong journey of faith. And on this journey of faith, we not only face external challenges, which is what a number of the Psalms thus far have been talking about. They talk about a nation's wanting to take over the land that God had given his people. They talk about injustice being done to the people of God. But not only do we face external challenges in our journey of faith, we also face internal challenges as well. We also deal with internal struggles, with our own sinfulness and our own brokenness on the journey of faith as well. And I think Psalm 130 helps us address that. Psalm 130 has traditionally been referred to as one of the penitential psalms, one of the personal penitential psalms. And so it helps us deal with our own sinfulness and our own brokenness in a healthy way as we walk this journey of faith. And so I think a good place for us to start uh, this morning is with Genesis 2, the reading that Juliet read for us this morning, because I think it helps set the stage for Psalm 130. In Genesis 2.25, the last words of the chapter, it says that the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. They felt no shame at their nakedness. And then, of course, that sets the stage for the next verse, which is Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, the man and the woman sin. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that God had commanded them not to eat from. And the immediate consequence of that action is shame. Genesis 3, 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig, tree, uh, sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So they went from being naked and unashamed to immediately feeling shame at their nakedness. Shame was the consequence of sin. But shame, I want to suggest to you, was never meant to be an end in itself. Shame is always an invitation. It's always been meant to call us back to God. Shame and guilt are functions of our conscience, which are a gift from God. And those feelings have always been meant to, been meant to tell us that something's gone wrong, something's amiss here. We're, we're moving in the wrong direction. We're moving away from God's intentions for us. We're moving in the wrong direction. You're moving towards slavery and bondage to sin. That's the warning that we get with shame and guilt. 
And the invitation is to turn back to the freedom that we have as the children of God. That's the invitation. When shame and guilt are not properly understood and they're not properly responded to, they can be debilitating. They can cripple us. They can lead us into despair and all sorts of other sinful acts. They can be excruciatingly painful. But when shame and guilt are are properly understood and properly responded to, they are gifts from God because they lead us back to his love and his forgiveness and his grace. Psalm 130 said this, they lead us to forgiveness, to God's steadfast love, and to his plentiful redemption. But that only happens when we heed them as a warning and we receive them as an invitation to turn back to him. And so I think Psalm 130, as I said before, shows us what a proper response to shame and guilt looks like. And that response begins with first an acknowledgement of sin, begins by facing our own sin and brokenness, not turning away from it. So it says in verse 1 and 2, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He's crying out for mercy in the song. From the depths of my soul, I cry out to you, O Lord. O Lord, be attentive to my pleas for mercy. Last week, we talked about the need to despise sin um, and to turn away from it. And in Psalm 129, that was sort of external sin. That was the sin of other people and the repercussions that it had on us. But in today's Psalm, Psalm 130, we're called to despise sin, but this time it's our own sin. It's our own sin, our own brokenness that both harm us and harm the people around us. And to face our own sin, it takes courage, I want to suggest. Because it's easy for us to spot the sins in other people, the speck in other people's eyes, is what Jesus said. It's a whole other thing to see the log in our own eyes, our own sin and our own brokenness, because that hurts us in a totally different kind of way. It wounds our pride, it wounds our ego, it shatters the false image of ourselves that we carry around thinking that we're beyond sin or something like that. It takes a lot of courage to face it. But this psalm reminds us that, that, that no healing can occur. We cannot experience that plentiful redemption that the psalm speaks of without first having the courage to face our own sin brokenness. To see the hurt and the damage that it causes us and other people, and to cry out to God for mercy. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. You can just hear that longing. Let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. I am crying out to you for mercy. Before anything else, if we want to deal with any of the inner turmoil that we experience because of guilt and shame, then we first must face it and cry out to God for mercy. No healing can occur without the first acknowledgement of sin and brokenness. Secondly, not only do we have to face the reality of our own sin and our own brokenness, but we also have to face our own inadequacy in being able to bring about the healing that we both need and desire. Verses 3 and 4 say, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? We know the answer. None of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us could stand. None of us are righteous, save for Jesus Christ. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. 
that you may be feared. It's the you that is the crux of the sentence. It's one thing to acknowledge our faults and failures, something else entirely different to come to the realization that I cannot save myself. I cannot redeem myself. I cannot bring about the healing that I so desperately need. Only you, O God, can forgive sins. Only you have the power to save. Only with you is plentiful redemption. I cannot save myself. I cannot stand before God on my own two feet. I am not righteous. Only with you is forgiveness to be found. Therefore, God is to be feared. And so part of the healing journey that we go on when we deal with our own guilt and shame is to learn that humility is is required in this process as well. That's not a bad thing. But humility is required because it means that we have to have the wisdom to know, I cannot save myself. I must turn to God. Third, this psalm, I think, beautifully straddles this line between two extremes. One extreme is sort of the presumption of grace. To be so uh, certain of God's forgiveness that we take it for granted, essentially. That would be one extreme. The other extreme is the debilitating terror that comes from not knowing whether or not it can be saved. And the psalmist straddles this line. We see this beautifully in verses 3 and 4 again. They say, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I find it particularly interesting that forgiveness is spoken of first, don't you? The psalmist knows the character and nature of God. Therefore, he can declare that with you, forgiveness is found. But we do not presume upon the mercy of God. We say it every week in the prayer of humble access. We don't presume upon God's mercy. We don't take that forgiveness lightly. It's not presumed upon. What it does is it causes holy fear. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That recognition of God's character and nature causes fear to rise up in us. Holy reverence for who God is. It's that perfect tension between knowing that God will forgive us of our sins. We don't have to succumb to nihilistic terror. We don't know if if we're ever going to be forgiven for what we have done. We know that we will be forgiven, but we approach God with holy fear, with reverence, with honor. We don't take that sin lightly. So when I think of this, I think of Bonhoeffer, who I think captured this perfectly in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And I want to read a longer quote to you because I need to hear these words constantly. It's when he talks about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. I want you to hear these words. Cheap grace, that presumptive grace. He says, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost, he says. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite What would grace be if it were not cheap, he says. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. 
that you're actually baptized into the body of Christ. We, we care for one another. We look out for one another. We hold each other up and hold each other accountable. Communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Sheep grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living in your heart. And this is what he says. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the very eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave, disciple leaves his net to follow Jesus. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which each person must knock. Such grace, I want you to hear this, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives all of us one true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Amen? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I think that's something we should sit with this week. We are called to acknowledge our sin. We are called to acknowledge our inability to bring about the redemption that we so need and desire. And we are to receive with eternal gratitude the costly grace of Jesus Christ. And I think all of this can sound very straightforward. But I would invite you to pay attention to your own emotions the next time you feel that pang that of guilt or shame. What do you do when you experience that? Do you face it or do you turn away from it and brush it under the carpet? Do you acknowledge your, your own inadequacy to redeem the situation? Do you think I can take care of this for myself? Do you downplay sin and merely presume that God will forgive you so it's really not that big a deal? Or do you count the cost of God's grace and forgiveness in your life? I think these are worthy questions for us to consider this week. And the last thing that this psalm um, also invites us to recognize is the reality that the scenarios uh, that, that our own sin causes, our own hurts, our own brokenness, um, the effects of our own sin, both in our own lives and in the lives of others, that often doesn't resolve quickly. It involves waiting. And that can be difficult. We know God's forgiveness immediately. Amen. That we have received, when we repent, we receive God's grace and his forgiveness immediately. We do not live in guilt and shame. 
but that does not necessarily mean that the effects of our sin will be quickly resolved. And so waiting is often required. So the psalm says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. In his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Waiting is often a painful side effect of our own sin. And sometimes when we can't, aren't willing to wait, we end up doing more damage. Don't we? At least I know I have. But one of the things that I was thinking about this week and that I think our Hebrews passage reminds us is that God is active in our waiting. God empathizes with us. It's through the incarnation that he come in, comes and meets us in our own suffering. And Hebrews 2 reminds us that Jesus is our great high priest who ever lives to intercede on our behalf. That means that right now, he is ministering for us before the throne of God. While we wait, God is active. And it takes discipline and it takes faith to trust in that sometimes. But I read a story this week that I thought um, sort of captured this well, and I want to share it with you. It comes from um, the Presbyterian newspaper. I hadn't, I've never picked that up here before, but I saw it last week and grabbed it. And the whole issue was devoted to um, the issue of residential schools. And in it, it, one of the stories that it told was the story of Grace Presbyterian Church in Calgary, Grace Presbyterian was one of the 10 churches that were vandalized with, with red or orange paint on the morning of July 1st after the discovery of another site of uh, unmarked graves, this time in BC. And the minister told the story like this. He said, um, after having seen the, the red paint splattered on the front doors of the church, he said, um, the thought of cleaning up the red paint on Grace's building that day was very present. He wanted to just immediately go and clean it off. But he said, uh, yet something didn't feel right about rushing to clean it up. Instead, it felt like there was a need to sit with the red paint for a while and hold space for the grief and the anger and the hurt that that pain represented. So he waited. And so what they decided to do, the story goes on to say, on July 2nd, the next day, the leadership of the church met to discuss how they would respond to the paint with the congregation and the community at large. And they discussed a plan where they would put out a, a sandwich board out front of the church with a QR code giving information, linking people to Grace's response and to the work of the Presbyterian Church in Canada. This work has included ways to foster justice, healing and reconciliation for its roles in operating residential schools and recognizing how our involvement, he said, has inflicted deep and lasting trauma that is still being inflicted today. And so once you notice that, they, they face their own sin. They didn't just try and cover it up. They faced their own sin. And then they said that they, they decided to, to wait for oh, until their next churchwide meeting, which was July 8th, the following week. And then they would decide what to do. And on July 8th, they agreed that the red paint would remain on the doors for the foreseeable future. And they also established a working group to dig into the work of truth, healing, and reconciliation. This group has launched community conversations on the front steps of the church. Plans are being put into place to share history, stories, and understandings, and a public service of lament was being planned for the end of September, likely last Thursday, the first uh, national day of truth and reconciliation. And then finally, it said, we hope to look for ways to collaborate with First Nations people in and around Calgary, Treaty 7, as well as the Presbyterian Church in Canada in works of truth healing and reconciliation. 
And so what I just want you to notice in this story is that goodness is coming from this, I think. You're seeing ways to, to move forward in positive ways, but they didn't get there by just trying to immediately jump to it. They waited. They acknowledged their sin. They sought to repent of it, and they sought to work with the community at large to move forward together. I just want to say, while we're in this season of waiting, which I think we still are with COVID, we might want to spend all our time just wanting to get back to the way it was, always wanting to think about the future. God is doing something right now. I think there's an invitation for us to experience this time of waiting in which God is doing something in us. Maybe he's bringing forth sins in our own lives that we need to deal with. But he's also planting seeds of goodness for us to participate in once this season does come to an end. But it takes waiting and it takes paying attention during that time. So I pray that we would commit ourselves to that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.